We are Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. Great to see you all. Super excited about Sunday. Super excited about Easter Sunday. Just such a special, special day. I've even got my Pentecostal uh, uh, white <laughs> scarf to, to dab my brow if I get a little sweaty this morning as we preach the Word of God, but... That's what we have to look forward to this morning. So trusting for God to, to move, trusting for God to do amazing things in our hearts, trusting that we would be able to set aside the familiarity of Easter Sunday and for God to do something special and something new. This is the day He has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Before we get into the Word this morning, and uh, I just want to take a few moments to update us regarding our building project. And if you are visiting here today, if this is your first time at Anthem Church Firstly, as James has already said, a warm, warm welcome to you. I'm delighted that you have chosen to to celebrate Easter Sunday with us. It is a huge, huge honor and a huge privilege. Seven weeks ago, we started on this incredible and audacious journey as a church to to trust God to provide $300,000 so that we could put a down payment on a building uh, at 3850 West Montrose. And uh, you guys know, if, this, if Anthem is your, is your home, you'll know that we've, over those seven weeks, we've, we've cried out to God together, we've prayed, we've listened, we've worshipped, and, and so many of you have given so, so generously. It, it's, been a, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And the good news that I have is that we are literally just inches away from that $300,000, $7,000 short of that $300,000 mark. So we are right there. It's, uh, God has been amazing, and I want to I thank every single one of you who have owned this journey with us, who've gone on this adventure with us. It's been, uh, it's been exhilarating, it's been overwhelming, and everything in between, and, and I would honestly say that describes an hour in my life uh, over the last seven weeks. I mean, it's just been amazing, but I just want to mention two quick things that God has reminded me of through this journey, and the one is from a verse in Isaiah 41. God's been speaking to me so profoundly through the book of Isaiah, and there's a verse in Isaiah 41 which says this, for I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He's the one who spoke creation into being. He's the one whose whose word is steadfast and stands forever. His word never, the Bible says, never returns to him without having achieved the purpose for which it was, was sent. I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. I love that. The, 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 the right hand is symbolic of strength. The right hand is, is, is symbolic of authority. And God says, I take hold of your right hand. Uh, that, that picture is just so profound for me. God, God covers our authority and our strength with his authority. And with his strength. And that's where we find authority and strength. It's in him. I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. God's word is the the word on which we stand. And that's what's propelled us along this journey. And then the second thing I've just been reminded of and I want to remind each of you of is the fact that on every faith journey, we, we trust for the promise of God to be fulfilled. We contend for the promise of God to be fulfilled. But as we've said for so many years at Anthem, that's not the great reward of any faith journey. The great reward of any faith journey is intimacy with Jesus. The great reward with any faith journey is, is closeness with our Heavenly Father, with, with experience, the, 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 the experience of the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what we've experienced these last, last seven weeks. So 
Um, we, were, we were scheduled to close on Friday. Um, there was a small technicality, not on our side, on the seller's side, so don't worry, nothing is, is going awry. Uh, it's scheduled, closing is scheduled for Tuesday at 1 p.m. Um, that, that's when it's scheduled. So, so come back next week, and we're going to celebrate not only the $300,000, but we're going to celebrate the fact that we've got the building uh, in, in our hands. So again, thank you to everyone who's been part of this amazing journey. Having said that, let's turn in our Bibles, if we can, to the book of Psalms. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 24 this morning um, for what is going to be the, both the conclusion of our Psalm series but also uh, the celebration of, of Easter Sunday. So Psalm 24 is, is where we're going to be. Uh, as you guys are probably aware, uh, the Psalms was uh, ancient Israel's hymn book, and it was, it was what they used uh, for the private and the, also, the, um, also the public worship of, of God. And, and we typically read the Psalms as, as, as poems, but uh, these actually were, were the worship songs that ancient Israel used. And, and as songs can only do, the, the truths that are contained within these psalms penetrated the, the hearts and the minds and the imaginations of the people of Israel. So much so that the psalms were in fact the most referenced and the most quoted book of all the Old Testament book by Jesus and also the New Testament authors. And, and David, who was... Uh, Israel's king about 3,000 years ago, and who authored the majority of the 150 psalms that, that are contained in, in, in this book of psalms, um, David writes in Psalm, in psalm 40, he says this, I, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, and he heard my cry. I love that. He turned to me, and he, and he heard my cry. And, and, and that's what the psalms, I think, best represent. They, they represent our, our heart's cry in the midst of the exhilarating highs and the desperate lows of life, both then when David was writing, but also now as we get to read the Psalms. And, and I think that's what, that's what makes the Psalms so accessible, is, is the fact that they are, they are profoundly human. They are, they are real. They give us expression and, and, and enable us to be honest with God and also honest with ourselves. Aidan, when he started the series six weeks ago, gave us this incredible truth. The Psalms give us vocabulary as we approach God. They give us expression and language to our heart's cry. And we've learned over the last six weeks the, the cry of the heart for, uh, for intimacy. From Psalm 27, David writes, one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. They give us the heart's cry for sorrow and lament. We learned that from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. The heart's cry of thanksgiving from Psalm 126. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The, the heart's cry of praise from Psalm 89. I will declare that your love stands firm forever. And then last week, this, the, the heart's cry of, of confidence from Psalm 16. Keep me safe my God, for in you I take refuge. And today what we're going to learn from Psalm 24 on this final Sunday of, of, uh, of the Psalm series, but also, as I said, Easter Sunday, is the heart's cry of surrender, which ultimately brings victory. When we surrender ourselves to Jesus, no matter the circumstances, it ultimately brings victory. That's where we find victory, is in our surrender to Jesus. And that's what, we, that's what we're going to learn today, the heart's cry of surrender and victory. So let's read Psalm, Psalm 24 together. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
the world and all who would live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear to a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. For those who were around at the beginning of the year, I wonder if you might remember our very first preaching series of the year. And I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't, because it feels like in the last three and a half months, so much has happened, not only here at Anthem Church, but in, in our city and the world at large. I mean, we, we, were, we were introduced in January to the Fiji Water Girl, which uh, is behind me. I don't know if you remember the Fiji Water Girl at the, uh, at the Golden Globes. We were introduced to her for the very first time. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just ignore what I've just said. It's got nothing to do with our sermon. I just thought I'd throw in something there for the, the younger people in our, in our crowd. We've <laughs> I got you, Rachel. <laughs> we've, got <laughs> we've, we've changed our church name. We're now Anthem Church. We've, we've redesigned our logo. We've launched a new website. As a city, we voted in our first African-American woman mayor. We, we, had a, we had a blizzard on April 14th. Last Sunday, we had a winter blizzard, and we're just, about, we're just about to buy a building. So in all of that, that's in three and a half months. So if you don't remember, if you were here, if you don't remember our very first sermon series, it's okay, I'm not going to judge you, but our first sermon series of the year was a three-part series called All In, and it was built around our most valuable value which is all of us for Jesus. And it's a, it's a value that is built around these truths of, firstly, total surrender. Total surrender, not to a church or not to a vision statement, but total surrender to Jesus. And then it calls for wholehearted trust. Wholehearted trust to the point where we allow Jesus and the promises of God to do the heavy lifting. And if there's anything I would suggest that's been challenged and worked in us and that we've had to face is this idea of total surrender and wholehearted trust. But when we say this word all in, as I asked at the beginning of you, and I feel like it's important to ask again, what does all in look like? What does all in ask of me? And that's a challenging concept if we consider the achievement-based culture in which we live. The world around us is, is demanding that our worth be measured by, by what we do and, and therefore what we own and what we know and what we have and what other people say of us. And we're constantly reminded in this culture that we, we just don't quite measure up, that actually the, the goal for our lives is actually perfection. And, 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 and the, the reality is everything around us is, is, is showing us that. We, we can't show weakness, and we, we are demanded by our culture to provide answers to what seems like in every single question that we could possibly face. And we don't need to look much further than social media to confirm this reality, to confirm this fear. 
If we, if we open up Instagram right now, right away, we would know that we actually are just not matching up. And if somehow we are matching up, there's this fear that we can't sustain it. So what does all in look like to the culture of, of the world in which we live? It looks like I need to do more. And I want to say this, while the world around us demands that we do more, God wants, to re- wants us to rest in Jesus has done, in the finished work of the cross. More being, as we coined that phrase a couple months ago, more being as opposed to more doing is a posture of surrender. It's an acceptance that Jesus has done it all, and it reveals to us, as we're going to learn today, the glory of God, which is nothing less than victory no matter the circumstances that we face. And that's what Psalm 24 is all about. We're going to get there in a few moments. But before we do, I just want to point our attention to this incredible verse that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't turn there in your Bible. It'll appear on the screen behind me. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, And we all, with unveiled faces, in other words, those who have surrendered their hearts to Jesus, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, gazing upon and reflecting the glory and the beauty of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same image as the person of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. As we behold Him, we become more and more like Him. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." And so the question we've got to ask when we read this verse is, is where does true transformation, where does true spiritual maturity or where does true spiritual transformation come from? Does it come from within? I want to say no. If we start looking within, we will very quickly begin to realize we don't, we don't do enough, we don't pray enough, we don't read enough, we don't give enough, we don't, we don't love enough, we're not patient enough, we're not kind enough. Move along, sir. Move along, madam. There's nothing to see there. That's the word of the Lord. There's nothing good to see there. True spirituality, true transformation comes from from more being, not more doing. True spirituality, true transformation, true breakthrough, I would say, comes as we begin to gaze upon the glory and the beauty and the manifest glory and presence of the Lord. When we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3. And as David mentions in the last few verses of Psalm 24, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors. Lift up your heads and surrender your hearts, is what David is saying. That the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This king of glory. He's the Lord Almighty. He's the victorious one who has conquered death. He is the king of glory. So so Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that we need to behold the glory of God. And and David refers to God as the king of glory. So we have to just take a few moments to consider what is the glory of God. Now, Now that's an impossible thing to do in a few sentences, let alone a sermon or weeks of sermons. But I'm going to do my best to give you a very brief summary of what is the glory of God. And I there's a number of, of, of people who've, who've helped me kind of come up with this, this definition, this simple definition. Here it is. The glory of God is the making known, is the public display, is the radiance or the going public of God's infinite beauty, holiness, and worth. 
and its consequences on humankind. So let me say that again. The glory of God is the making known, the public display, the radiance, the going public of God's infinite beauty, holiness, and worth, and its consequences on humankind. The glory of God is available to every single one of us to some degree, whether we are followers of Jesus or not. And that's what verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 24 tell us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who believe in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. There are, there are places, you know, living in the city, there, there is beauty all around us. There really, there really is. I mean, the beauty of buildings and the beauty of, of the bean and the beauty of great food and the beauty of, of good wine and the beauty of great friendships. But, but there, are, there are places like this on our planet, believe it or not. There really are places like this on our planet. And, 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 and over 15 years of being here in Chicago, we've done our fair share of staycations. And staycations are great. But let's be honest. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to really vacation. I mean, look at that. Those are mountains. Those, when, when we first arrived in Chicago, I'm going to really embarrass my, my one daughter who's here, but when we first arrived in Chicago, they were six and seven at the time. We were driving south on the Dan Ryan, and we came across that landfill, that grassy knoll, that landfill, and our girls uttered the words, look, there's a mountain. And I turned to my wife, and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what have we done? What have we done? <laughs> That's a mountain. That's a mountain. And you'd all agree that, that, that there's something within the human heart that is drawn to natural beauty. Natural beauty creates in us an ache and a longing that itself cannot fulfill. It points to someone or something greater. And to those of us who are, who are believers in the God of the Bible, that someone is God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Beauty stirs up worship. Whether it's worship that is, that is, that is given a, a, a language like you grab a friend and you say, oh my goodness, did you see the sunset this morning? Or whether it's worship where we join with the angels and we say, the whole world is full of your glory. Natural beauty stirs up worship. So, so in a general sense, the glory of God is, is made known and is accessible to all. But I want to say the glory of God is, is also tied to God's holiness. Before the angels in Isaiah 6 proclaimed, the whole earth is full of your glory, they did say this. They declared, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's glory is therefore also revealed through His holiness. God's, God's glory is the, is the moral, ethical, and spiritual standard by which we all will be judged. It's why in Romans 3, the Bible t tells us very clearly that sin is falling short of the glory of God. Psalm 24 carries on. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who is worthy to behold the glory of God? Who is worthy to access the presence of this holy God that we are worshiping? The answer is this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart 
who is, uh, who, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who, who, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Well, great. That basically just disqualified every single one of us, myself included. I mean, what a wonderful Easter sermon I'm preaching. Trust me, it'll, it'll get better. Essentially, what David is saying is, who is worthy? Who is worthy to ascend the, 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 the mountain of the Lord and behold the glory? No one reading this is essentially the summary of, of the answer. And, and as if to tease us, look at verse 5 and 6. David's kind of playing with us a little here. They, those who have clean hands, those that we want to be, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, they will receive blessing and favor from the Lord and vindication or righteousness from, their, from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Friends, Romans, we go back to what I said in Romans, from Romans 3. Every one of us, everyone on this planet has fallen short of the glory of God. No one is outside of, the, of that verdict. We, we are born into sin, the Bible tells us. We are born with a, with a propensity, with a bent, with a, towards sin rather than towards righteousness. David himself says in Psalm 51, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But not only are we we born into sin, there is the personal reality of sin. The times when we know something that we should do and choose not to do it. Or the times that we know we shouldn't do something and we choose to do it. I want to say this categorically. God hates sin. God hates sin, and that cannot be overstated. The God of infinite love hates sin so much that he was willing to send his son Jesus to experience the most gruesome of deaths on a cross in order to judge and ultimately destroy sin forever. God's great wrath against sin is a reflection of his great love for you and for me and for every person on this planet. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We see the glory of God in creation, but only dimly. We cannot access the mountain of God's glory and God's presence. And so the question surely that is hopefully rising up within us is, what do I do? To which I say, you do nothing. It's not about what you do. It's about resting in Jesus's done. His finished work on the cross. Throughout the Old Testament, God uh, chose to, to reveal His glory in different ways to His people, the Israelites. We, we can, if you did a survey of the Old Testament time and time again, you'll see different ways that God manifests His glory, whether it's through thunder or through lightning or through, through fire or through the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the, and, and, and the fire by night, whether it's a, a burning bush, various manifestations of the glory of God. But towards the end of this of the Old Testament, there's a very significant moment where, where the prophet Ezekiel has this, this revelation of God's glory. And he says this in Ezekiel chapter 1. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there and from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounding him, like the appearance of a rainbow. In the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down 
and I heard the voice of one speaking. What, what, what is the relevance of that? Uh, up until this point, the glory of God has, had only been revealed to his people through fire, through lightning, through brilliant light, through thunder, and through earthquakes. And now what Ezekiel is telling us is a time is coming when all of that is going to be manifest in, the, in a person that God is going to send. 600 years Later, that prophetic word wasn't fulfilled for 600 years. And then 600 years later, John the Baptist appears on the scene. And speaking of Jesus, he says of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand and the glory of God is now manifest in your presence. Hebrews chapter one says this of Jesus, the son, Jesus is the radiance, the manifestation of God's glory. In other words, he's the fulfillment of that prophetic word in Ezekiel and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. And let me pause there because I do need to say a few things about just building on the the incredible sermon James gave on, on, on Friday night. Jesus, as James taught us, Jesus set aside the fullness of his deity and took on the limitations of human flesh. He took on this, the the, the incredible limitations in order to do what we couldn't do, weak as we were in the flesh. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Now, remember where we are in the psalm. Remember where we are in the psalm. Who can ascend the mountain of God, who can gaze upon the glory of God? Only he or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't give their heart to an idol. And we've already covered, that's not us. We're disqualified. But Jesus came to do what we couldn't. Just as Adam imputed his sin to us, because we are born of him, Jesus came to impute his righteousness to us, if we would be born again in him. And so we ascend the mountain of the Lord. We can gaze upon the glory of the Lord when we are in Jesus. On the cross, on that Roman cross, when when Jesus was mocked and scorned and and bits of his hair was ripped out of his head and and flesh was ripped from his bones as, as a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and blood began to drip down his face as, as nails were driven through his wrist and his feet as, as the sin of the world, past, present, and future was poured out upon Jesus. So much so that the father had to turn his face from his son in his moment of most desperate need Causing Jesus, as David prophesied in Psalm 22, to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he was absorbing the wrath and judgment of God for everyone who would later believe in his name. And that sacrifice was was so complete that it paid for the sins past, present, and future for all who would later repent and believe in the name of Jesus. How can we be so sure that the sacrifice was accepted? Because Jesus rose from the grave. In the Old Testament, when when a priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel, he would go in with fear and trembling into the very holiest place, the presence of God. And the entire nation of Israel would stand on the outside waiting to see if he would emerge alive. You see, if that sin was not accepted, 
the presence of God was so thick in that place that it would strike the priest down and he would die. If he didn't emerge from that holy place, the sin wasn't, wasn't accepted. And I want you to imagine the, the, the hours ticking by as the nation of Israel are waiting. Is the sacrifice accepted? And then eventually the priest emerges. And the entire nation of Israel erupt. He's alive. He's alive. The sin has been, the sacrifice has been accepted. That's what happened on the cross, friends. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but our God is not dead. Jesus is alive. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews carries on. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. I love that. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He was saying, it is finished. It is finished. The assignment is complete. The sacrifice has been accepted. The price has been paid to set prisoners free and to welcome in people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to become citizens of heaven. Friends, there's nothing to be added. The gospel is Jesus is alive. My favorite verse in all of Scripture is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, behold the glory of God. Gaze upon the beauty of God. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. When the promise of God seems impossible, when it seems unlikely that you will ever see the breakthrough that you're trusting for, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. It's not about what you do, but it's about resting in Jesus' done. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, once said this, my entire theology can be condensed into four words, Jesus died for me, which I will humbly add to, very humbly add to, four more words, and rose in victory, and rose in victory. So God, friends, God says to us, you are holy You are blameless, you are spotless, you are righteous. I've given you everything you need for life and for godliness. What I've promised will come to pass in my time. But our achievement-based culture constantly reminds us that we've fallen short and that we have to do something if we ever are to have the hope of seeing the promises of God fulfilled. And so as we bring this into land, I want to ask the question, how should we respond to Jesus being the glory of God made manifest through the Holy Spirit? Or let me ask you you this in a negative way. How are we to respond to an achievement-based culture that tells us you are not worthy and that you are not doing enough and that that the, the culture demands more doing rather than more being? Well, Psalm 24 verse 7 through 10 gives us the answer. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, the victorious one who rose from the dead and defeated sin and defeated Satan and defeated sickness and death. He is the king of glory. In other words, friends, how do we respond to the glory of God? We look up. We look to Jesus. We we look and we behold the glory of God. God says to us, you are blameless 
and you are spotless, and you are pure, and you are my son or my daughter, and I have promises and plans for you. And what we say is we go off to the corner and we say, no, Lord, I'm not that, but let me try really hard to be that for you. Let me try and show you that I can be blameless and I can be spotless. And let me try and at least make a futile attempt to show you that I can fulfill the promises that you have over me. And God says, no. God says, look at me. God says, I am able. God says, I am perfect. God says, I am holy. God says, I am blameless. God says, I am mighty in battle. God says, I am the king of glory. God says, I am the one who disarmed Satan and broke the power of sin and defeated death. God God says, look to me and I will do it because you are, are mine. God says, fix your eyes on me because I am the author and the perfecter of your faith. God says, I will transform you from one degree of glory to the next as you behold me. God says, I am your provider. God says, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. The world demands that we do more, but God wants us to rest in Jesus' done, in his finished work on the cross. Friends, I want to put it to you that this is the only, only response, the only acceptable response to the glory of God. This is the only suitable response to the glory of God. Strength and, 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 and perfection and provision and salvation and freedom and breakthrough, and wisdom don't belong to you and me. They belong to God. But they are ours in Him. They are ours as we, as we behold Him, as we let Him take our right hand, as we allow His perfect power to be manifest in our weakness. I want to submit this question to you as we end. Are you more aware of and more driven by the knowledge of your shortcomings and failures and God's unfulfilled promises and what you need to do rather than being more aware of and driven by the knowledge of God's glory, His mercy, His grace, His faithfulness, His love given to you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't have this in the NIV, but in the, in the English Standard Version, Psalm 24 ends with the word sailor. And sailor simply is a command added to the end of a psalm by the author of the psalm, commanding that we pause, commanding that we stop, commanding that we consider the truths of what has been found in that psalm. We're going to break bread in a few moments together as a, as a church community. But before we do that, we're going to stop and we're going to pause And we're going to consider what God may have been saying to you and to me through this sermon. We're going to take a few moments as the worship team begins to play. We're going to take a few moments and just take two or three uninterrupted minutes to behold the glory of God. Maybe you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm not inviting you to do anything as join a church or be part of a religion or whatever. I'm inviting you simply where you are seated to Behold the glory of God. What that simply means is to say to the Lord, to cry to the Lord, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show yourself to me? 
And if you're here today and you are trusting for breakthrough, you are trusting for promises of God to be fulfilled, you found yourself being caught up in a performance-based culture where you feel like you're just not doing enough, today I want to invite you to behold the glory of God, to have that Salem moment, just two or three minutes before we come down and break bread together, just to enjoy the presence of God, to sit in His presence and to allow Him to speak to you. So can we do that? It's going to get super awkward because it's going to be quiet. But we're just going to take some time to enjoy God's presence before we move on and do anything else. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us, anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.